Professor Dan Hicks, welcome to Tell a Friend. Now, for those of you who may not have come across the professor, he is a professor of contemporary archaeology at the University of Oxford. You are also the curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum, and you're the author of the new book, The Brutish Museums. So, Fantastic. I've got one too. There we go. There Snap. We go. So I wanted to begin by asking you what the impetus for writing this book was. Yeah, so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, when we think about understanding empire, we're aware that the British yeah, burned a lot of documents. A lot of these histories are unwritten histories. And, you know, there's a long tradition in archaeology and to some degree anthropology of using, you know, fragments, assembling, you know, material remains to tell stories which are not otherwise told. You know, over the years, I've been curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum for 13 years now. And, you know, as an archaeologist, I work on the most recent past, on those sort of periods of time where we think we're in a historical period, but there's so much often which is unspoken, unknown, so many histories that have not been written that we can write with objects. So, you know, you know, while they burned the documents, they didn't burn the art. They didn't burn what they took from Africa as a continent and more generally from the global south. So the book's point of uh, departure really is that a big part, well, it, it begins with an idea that I call, you know, Euro, uh, Euro pessimism, the idea that actually maybe the primary meaning of African objects in Western art museums or world culture museums is, you know, the history of the colonial sort of processes via which they were taken. And until those objects which are requested to be returned are returned, that's all they'll be uh, in order to really allow us to understand the significance, the beauty and aesthetics of these, you know, sacred and royal objects you know, we need to see their, their, their return. So, yeah, that's the point of departure. Understanding empire from a British point of view, you know, restituting art from, from, from a Nigerian and arguably a more generally African, you know, perspective, because it isn't only about you know, Benin. Uh, the dispossession of Africa happened in a whole range of different ways, as the book implies. But, yeah, the focus is really on the Benin promises. Now, the subtitle of the book is The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution. So could you define uh, cultural restitution and how you see it uh, in your view? Yes, of course. So, you know, restitution, I think, is a you know, preferable word to say, you know, repatriation, because it reminds us that returns of objects are demanded not only by nation state actors, and they're not only held by nation states either. We often think about these conversations as only about, you know, a formerly colonized nation and its relationship with the former colonial power in terms of governmental you know, diplomacy. But the, the claimants and the rightful owners of the Benin, you know, bronzes are, of course, the royal court of uh, Benin. Um, other actors involved in important players are the federal government and uh, yeah, yeah, the national government. Here in the UK, 
you know, most of these objects are not in the national collection. Most objects in the UK which were looted in this incident in, you know, the late 1890s are not now in the British Museum. You know, maybe about 8% of the, you know, 10,000 objects or so which were taken at that time are in, you know, the British Museum. But in the UK, over half of those in the UK are in the non-national museums. They're spread across from you know, Belfast to Ipswich to, to, to Manchester to Leeds to Exeter to Oxford um, and internationally more than 160 institutions worldwide. So restitution in that case is not only about return to the nation state but return to the claimants um, and you know it involves you know necessarily the permanent and unconditional return of objects that were taken with you know violence or you know duress in in this case in the case of the benin bronzes you know with extreme violence um but also restitution i think is important because it opens up a set of further uh, uh, ideas of debt you know questions of debt so while returns are essential and this idea we might loan objects back is you know, offensive to many, there are also other ways in which, you know, Nigeria was also dispossessed and therefore supporting other. This is just the beginning of, you know, tackling anti-racism in, in a European museum, supporting the, the, the exciting uh, developments through which the idea of heritage, art and museums are being reinvented on an African model at the moment. Now, these debates around uh, cultural restitu uh, restitution and around decolonizing not only the curriculum, but the museum space. Is yeah. this a recent uh, emergence or is this something you've seen throughout the decades? So I think that's one of you know, the narratives that we need to correct in the protest, in the media coverage of the protests over the summer this year in 2020. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the sense from the media was this is a new thing. They talk about the Black Lives Matter moment. And that language is very, very, uh, you know, unhelpful, I think, because it removes the fact that even in, in recent years here in Oxford, the, the conversations you know, we have in this institution about restitution are informed by the Black Lives Matter movement after Charlottesville in the United States and how not only the fallism movement internationally that arguing about statues outdoors in the historic environment but also the restitution arguments um, you know indoors in the museums have been part of also Roads Must Fall as that came to Oxford from you know Cape Town uh in 2016 so both the fallism movement and the restitution movement are african movements and they are long-standing movements the first you know, coral you know, crown to be returned the, the first act of the restitution of the benin you know treasure that was was you know, taken uh happened overseen by the british museum as early as you know, 1938 and in the 1970s, objects were, were returned, you know, via you know, deaccession, uh, you know, from the British Museum. And the campaign to return objects has been going on for years. You know, Bernie Grant's important work in the 1990s, 
here in the UK, but also internationally, this conversation. So that kind of, um, you know, the thing that happens when we forget the histories of, you know, restitution is we think that we've just got to start from first principles about these all these arguments the what aboutist arguments well where do, you know what about the elgin marbles what about easter Ireland? what about you know the uh, the lewis your chess men from the you know the hebrides which are in london should they go back completely missing the very what which is the curatorial argument the contextual arguments the anthropological argument and i think in many ways the ethical argument that we take you know we respond to claims for restitution we don't talk about things where nobody's asking for something back and we take each case you know on a case-by-case basis in the case of the benin bronzes as i say that that call is almost a century old now now something i was really drawn to uh, in the book is where you're talking about knowledge is being powerful so especially in the historical and cultural sense and i wanted to ask you um, how has how have British museums used and um, weaponized this knowledge uh, in their acquisition and their displaying their display of all of these objects? That's a really good question. So I think it begin, I think there are two sides to it. I think there is the knowledge which had existed in you know, the Benin you know kingdom for centuries. It's an artistic tradition that reaches back into the 14th century and even earlier. Uh, West African civilizations, West African urban entities, you know, kingdoms, uh, which, within which the knowledge, the sacred knowledge, the knowledge of the ancestors, the way in which the bronze heads and the carved ivory tusks were not just you know representative of the ancestors of the obers the kings of uh, benin but also were constituting those ancestors they are the physical presence as a part of a whole set of you know ritual knowledge you know traditional religion which that act of you know dispossession the violent attack of 1897 was also an act of really you know, desecration. So on the one side, there's the erasure of knowledge, the, the very self-interested you know, British attack in order to destroy, you know, essentially sovereignty and sovereignty's relationship to, you know, belief. So belief and sovereignty are forms of knowledge. They're African forms of knowledge. They, they are you know, complex. They are, you know, they, they're part of a monarchy that reaches back earlier you know, than Elizabeth I in a, in a direct uh, succession, you know, right to the Ober, you know, today. Yeah, meanwhile, in the UK, the knowledge, something else happens with the knowledge. So the knowledge, the sheer free-for-all, the sheer chaotic nature of the looting of, you know, thousands of objects by hundreds of, you know, soldiers, of, of administrators for the, the protectorate, uh, even you know, journalists are on the ground there, you know, documenting this as it happens, as the book explains. And those people really, you know, bring back, I mean, a small number of objects are officially brought back and you know, 200 of the plaques end up in the British Museum. But actually, really, the vast majority of these objects are just you know, taken by individuals who sell them for, 
you know, private gain. And what happens then with the loss of knowledge is that new knowledge is created as the museums. So the newly created, at that time, very sort of cutting edge, you know, cultural inventions, the ethnological museum, you know, like the Pitt Rivers, which was founded in 1884, but like scores of other ethnological museums across Germany, across the UK, elsewhere in Europe, these institutions acquired these objects and you know, displayed them in, or, in order to make another kind of knowledge. And that knowledge was a, it was a fake, it was a fake science, exactly at the time as the physical anthropology you know, displays were displaying you know, human skulls to tell the racist narrative that there are different types of human. Uh, at the same time, cultural displays were being made in the same institutions that told the story of cultural superiority, of cultural evolution, as it was called here at the Pitt Rivers. So to show the display, to, you know, to show objects that the European, you know, visitor or curator, you know, appreciated, you know, supposedly by saying that these things were unsafe somehow anywhere now other than the, the museum, even though they've been safe in on the altars in the palaces for hundreds, hundreds of years and to use those displays to tell the story of, of 1897 in order to naturalize and to justify but importantly to make endure that violence that you know dispossession and to justify it on essentially you know cultural superiority the, the, you know, the argument of sort of you know, cultural evolution cultural superiority which of course is ultimately white supremacy so 1897 is very much the time at which anthropology is being co-opted by you know some really extreme forms of anti-black racism it's a kind of proto-fascism as i argue in the book and it has a particular you know you know, you know sort of sort of anglo-german you know geography this is the the violence the the racism and the dispossession is a terrifying you know whatever the opposite of an echo is it's a permanent it's a it's a pre it's a sense you get a sense from this event of all the horror that was going to come in the 20th century now in page 231 you describe museums as being unique kinds of contemporary public spaces and this is something i have to praise you for when reading the book you really draw on how the debates around the museum are so significant today so I just wanted to ask you, why do you see the museum as being a contemporary space? So, you know, the book introduces the idea of the chronopolitical, the idea that time itself can have a politics, you know, applied to it. That starts in some ways with the denial that Africa is in the contemporary moment. And, you know, the book argues that the physical shooting with, you know, Maxim machine guns, the killing of people, the taking of living cultural art objects and their display alongside ancient Egypt, alongside in the British Museum, alongside the Assyrian saloon, as it's called, here in the Pitt Rivers, alongside archaeology. To call this material archaeology, to call a culture archaeological is one way to dominate it, to say, you know, this is the equivalent to some lost kingdom you know, uh, all the, uh, you know, those ideas are a part of saying that Africa's in the past and that Europe is in the present. And it's Europe that has a future, 
you know and so the contemporary nature of the museum is from the moment from its foundation about the denial that the objects on the other side of of the glass pane are there from the past here you are you know lucky you if you're visiting the museum you're on the right side of history you're on the right side also though importantly in the 18 imagine walking around the galleries seeing these objects in the 1890s you're on the right side of of how this institution is you know racializing you're being racialized as white at the same time as you're visiting as a as an academic in oxford just as much as the um as the displays are being being used you know, to racialize africa as different as so-called to the primitive so but today this museum these museums are still here the projects of these museums are not over anthropology is a discipline arguably is the subject we need more than anything despite its colonial history despite where it came from anthropology as it went through the civil rights movement as it came out you know as it has tried to reinvent itself something like anthropology i mean not anthropology but something like anthropology is something we've never needed more than ever a way of seeing the world outside of a conventional eurocentric lens a way of you see, celebrating understanding respecting you know cultures ways of seeing from the global south from outside of of an anglo-european lens so as contemporary spaces in the book i talk about museums as spaces of hesitation we don't know how this ends i talk about the objects as events these are unfinished events each of those each of those ten thousand objects is an unfinished object an unfinished event and in many ways you know what we understand of the significance of you know such objects to you know benin you know society is you know very much about the power of the ongoing your know, power of these objects so and, and maybe even not only their ability but maybe their will to return as, as well so yeah as a contemporary space you know just as art museums are a public space you know to talk about art and culture as you know, theater is a performative space so too you know you know world culture museums are contemporary spaces for the disciplines of archaeology and anthropology we therefore need to make them fit for the 21st century and part of that as with any institution that has a history of of institutional racism structural violence uh an intimate relationship with you know, dispossession anti-blackness we have to there are many good things about these institutions but we need to dismantle to repurpose and to reimagine that isn't about just shuffling around the objects in the displays or rewriting the labels that's about the physical intervention when there are stolen goods on display and there are people asking for them back for us to begin not just the conversations but some some action oriented conversations that lead to the transformation of these museums the evolution of these museums you know into the present so they're fit for the 21st century now if we move forward with this idea uh, we come across in the book the term uh, necrography i'm not sure if i'm saying that right which you uh, define as being the writing of death and loss and you argue on page 153 that academics should decenter militaristic colonial knowledge and instead excavate cultural loss and look at artifacts as part of an unfinished event. 
And I wanted to ask you, how do you see these plundered artifacts that are in Britain, in France, in all of these European countries, uh, but looking at Britain specifically in this instance, how do you see them affecting communities in the global south and those communities who have had their culture disheveled? Sure. So, so I mean, the idea of, of the necrographic, I, do, I don't know how to pronounce it either. I just made the word up. But, you know, necrography sounds good to me. Um, you know, it's a play on Achille Mbembe's no, uh, recasting of Foucault. So Achille takes the Foucauldian notion of the biopolitical, uh, the politics of life, and he talks about the necropolitical. So the politics of who gets to live, who gets to die. So it's this term is a homage, really, to Achille's work, Achille Mbembe's work. Uh, and it's applied to this very you know prevalent idea in art history and anthropology of the life history of the object the cultural biography of the object this kind of idea is what leads hartwig fisher to be able the the, the yeah, director of the british museum to be able to claim that the taking of the elgin marbles the parthenon marbles was a creative act because it recontextualized this object it gave a new layer you take an object from one context into another the argument goes you're giving it a new phase of its life a new set of meanings it's it's a positive additive thing now that really dominant notion of how to study material culture in anthropology and archaeology and art history and museum studies is impossible i argue to reconcile it's a it's an impossibility to make sense of that in the context of violent loss, you know, dispossession, and dispossessions that were linked for West Africa with the ongoing with the with the violence of the dispossession of people through Atlantic slavery, through through the dispossession of land, through the the overall you know gradual dispossession of the global South in what Marx called you know the primitive accumulation through which you know capitalism was that, uh, that amazing section in you know capital where he describes the transition to capitalism as being speeded up in the tropics he 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 actually uh, compares you know the tropics and the global south to a kind of hot house a greenhouse through which you know europeans forced forward yeah capitalism through acts of active taking that was how you found yourself that was how uh, capitalism corporate colonialism you know was was you know, was established um so so you have you have all of that uh and i think yeah i mean i think that that's that 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 helps us then you know get a sense that a life history account that the idea that these objects are like hey you know they were seeking a better life in europe you know they this is great they're here loads more people can see them well actually the people that care about them can't see them and the universalist argument about museums as founded you know 20 years ago the argument that africans just need to get on an airplane if they want to see their heritage was always an unconvincing argument with the with the increasing visa regimes that are harder and harder for African people and for people from the global south to find, you know, to visit a museum in, you know, New York or in London. It's an absolute joke. And now, with lockdown, with the pandemic, with the coming environmental crisis, that means that international travel is being 
you know, certainly altered, if not ended in the way that we've known it in recent years, the hyper concentration of these cultures, this supposedly universal culture that, that somehow randomly only seems to be in the global north. If it's universal, why isn't it everywhere? You know, so they're the arguments from from I think from the the feelings. I don't want to speak for Nigerians, but I think you know the feelings from you know you know many you know people in in other states are that you know to see you know you know objects that they value that they care for that are significant and as I've said in terms of sovereignty and you know belief in terms of heritage then of course the physical location of them and also to to inspire creativity to inspire writing and filmmaking and all these other parts that go with you know cultural identity which is why we in this country in the uk care so much about our heritage about the physical about you know our built environment about you know everything that's here but but you know the dispossession of others really i think you know has 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 no place in that now, do you see this uh, lost or stolen culture is contributing to Africa's so-called underdevelopment? Um, because I was speaking to someone the other day who was saying that in the case of Africa, when you look at African politics, African society, they've really uh, built on uh, Western structures. So is, do you see a correlation between the two, a correlation between African society today and the plunders that went on in the 1890s? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, the, you know, one thing I've learned in writing this book is that art, who knew that art was so important in world history? You know, I, you know lots of people who want to fight racism in museums, who want to be, you know, to, to you know, ensure that museums are everything that they could be in, in you know, Europe might say, well, actually, restitution some like sideshow. Some that, that isn't how you tackle racism. That's just about some arguments over cultural identity. You know, a kind of woke nonsense, which are, which is a distraction from all the positive action we could be taking to diversify our institutions. To think about the, the what's often called the you know the capacity building for African museums now these these you know, questions of here at the pit rivers i i personally and us as an institution have been pioneering um you know, positive action training at a doctoral level uh for for black and minority ethnic uk students and that's a crucial crucial part about how we start to dismantle the white infrastructure of our museums but from an african perspective the answer is not simply to take the European model of a museum and to say that's what is needed in every you know, city in, in Africa. And until we have that, we can't talk about restitution because we're learning. There are many, many African innovate, you know, museum innovators from Cape Town to Dakar to Nairobi to Cairo across the continent. Yeah, the idea of a museum is being reinvented. The museum is a process rather than an endpoint. The museum that favours humans above objects. The museum that in some cases, well, in some cases, objects will not return to a museum. They will return to personal collections, to sovereign collections. In some cases, these objects should not be on display because they are, you know, sensitive. They are, they are culturally 
you know, sensitive. They're not not to be seen other than by certain certain people. In the case of human remains, we would never consider, you know, saying if we return a skull that it should be on display in the other location. And yet, in many ways, cultural objects as much constitute ancestors as actually human remains. That divide that that a Western museum curator would make in between human remains and you know cultural objects is for some communities far far more complex so for all of those reasons um you know really our job i think is to list foreground to amplify you know, you know african voices but the curators like me in you know, europe also have a job there we have to sh which is what this book tries to do we have to be honest about what we have we have to be honest that we don't know much about what we have and we need to excavate our archives to know that and share that knowledge but share it with a view then to you know to hearing the views of of african uh, colleagues of the source communities and of being open to their return now do you see this responsibility to be engaging in these debates and to you know be sending back some of these aspects do you see that as a responsibility of the curator and the museum or do you think responsibility, you know, lies further up in the chain? So I'd say, you know, giving back rather than sending back. I think some of this mm. uh, uh, language is incredibly important. You know, this is about responding to requests, but also sharing knowledge. So requests or indeed in some case, you know, demands when it's been asked for for a hundred years uh, are made. But yeah, I mean, the decision making in each of these institutions will be different. In the national museums, the law was changed in the case of Holocaust spoliation and in the case of human remains. Uh, and so for some of the national museums, the restitution of African cultural objects would also require a further change in the law, as has happened. But, you know, when people were debating Holocaust spoliation in the 1980s, you know, people used to make the same arguments that, you know, you'll never be able to tell where something is from, the provenance histories are too complex, even, you know, the ridiculous argument that we would interest ourselves in what happens to this artwork once it's returned. What if someone sells the painting? Well, you know, that's none of our business if this object was stolen. The same goes, I would argue, in terms of process. I mean, these are very different historical events and situations we're talking about but in terms of museum process you know we 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 have a model you know you know restitution is actually you know business as usual it's part of the curatorial work that goes on already and is long established for a generation or more and what we know from that is that what guides that that those actions are in, institutional processes in the non-national museums you know, local councillors, you know, museum trustees are the deciding, you know, body. And of course, overseen by guidance from Arts Council England, from, you know, the Charity Commission. But again, in the, in the UK nations, things are different in Wales and Scotland and, you know, Northern Ireland. But also the communities in which those museums sit are different as well. So one of the very interesting things that I think we're beginning to see is a conversation about the African art in, you know, Bristol you know, Museum. Because of the nature of the city of Bristol, because of the presence of African and Afro-Caribbean communities over the years in the city, that conversation is absolutely rightly, because of, again, the different history of the objects in the museum, 
the objects and the people come together and a certain local conversation develops and reaches out then, you know, to African communities. A different conversation happens in, say, Leeds or Edinburgh or Oxford or Cambridge. I think our, our national museums, as they defined themselves, the universal museums, as they self-declared themselves to be in 2002, you know, they imagine that their communities, their stakeholders and their audiences are all just some random thing called the world, the universal. What our non-national museums have been doing very well for, for a long time now is they're genuinely part of the communities that they claim to represent. So the conversations I think we're going to see and we all, all already are seeing are about African and African diasporic communities coming together with a whole range of different non-state actors, whole whole range of different museums and a really complicated and, and, and really this is what your know, truth and reconciliation for empire looks like because the, the history was complex but it's not so complex that nothing can be done. Um, and I think we're seeing some great leadership, whether it's from you know, um, you know, Jesus College Cambridge and the return of their cockerel, which was simply a decision of the trustee body, of the governing body of the college, or, or whether we're seeing the conversations happening in you know, non-national museums up and down the country. I think it's a very exciting time where we, you know, the professional standards and processes are evolving. This isn't iconoclasm. This isn't activism by curators. This is a new sort of you know, professional practice which is emerging. And it's really exciting to see. Now, for those of us who don't work in museums, who maybe are not in university spaces, how do we take part in this action? Do you suggest that people boycott museums, uh, you know, activism through uh, you know, their pocket? Or do you recommend people continue in these debates? Where, where do you see this debate moving forward for the general public? So I think, you know, lockdown has been a really interesting time for this because, you know, the museums have shut their doors and there's been a feeling by some curators that they've understood what it's like to be not only locked out of a museum because you're physically distant, let's say, because it didn't really matter, where you, you know, if we're all on Zoom staring at each other as we are right now, you know, does it really matter where, where, where anyone is sitting that you, you can't get the physical access to objects? That's been, yeah, that's been an interesting moment for these, you know, conversations to develop. But I think also what has happened is the human-centered ways of thinking about museums have really evolved. So what can communities do? Well, whether they're open or not, you know, most of the museums we're talking about are, are you know, free to enter. So there isn't an admission fee that's going to be lost or won by people going to museums or not. However, we have seen, you know, protests at, you know, museums. So we have seen, I mean, here, here at the Pitt Rivers, the Roads Must Fall Oxford, you know, campaign, you know, had, had an event on our lawn over the summer. Uh, and that was, I think, a very, very, you know, positive event. It was one that I spoke at, but, but also largely listened to. And I think, you know, for communities to try to change and help evolve the institutions they love is just great. Compare that to, you know, I think we could look at 
the protest that happened at the Museum of London, you know, Docklands, where very sadly a man was, you know, criminalised for making a protest in the galleries in, you know, January, which was in sharp contrast with the 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 official sanction of the removal of the statue of yeah, Milligan, the, the you know the yeah you know, the racist slave you know, trader from only about a hundred yards away at, outside. So protests, whether it's uh, you know at at the the uh, the Jeffrey Museum over the the culture minister's intervention in trying to make that museum not move a statue from one part of the museum to another, which is, it seems to me, a, an attempt to invent, or part of a wider attempt to invent a fake, you know, culture war here. Let's remember the culture wars being invented to try to push back on the, on the significant ongoing, you know, progress that's been made in the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. So what should communities do? Absolutely, if there is something they care about, they come together in the usual way. But if they're protesting, then actually the museums are getting something wrong. So let's, uh, you know, if they're public spaces, they need to be uh, democratic spaces. They need to think about their, the, the museums need to think about their audiences as stakeholders, as equal partners. I'm a great advocate of the evolution of the old model of curator, the kind of you know, Neil McGregor with a history of the world and a hundred objects, one of which was a Benin bronze, which you know, Neil, you know, a generation ago, chose to simply tell the story illustrated by this object with the same old you know, white male, you know, you know, you know, not English but Scottish in his case, but you know, voice, which was just the same old history. Instead, now it isn't curating it's curation you know, by which i mean it's it is a co-curation it's curation we we make these decisions with you yeah, know with our ears open and therefore communities have got to be part of that and the stories we tell have got to be accountable this is fundamentally for me you know this is this is really about the way in which museums are going to to retain you know, public support, you know, it's a different kind of authority that is not an old kind of authority that comes from the curatorial expertise, but about a sharing of that knowledge uh, and about legitimacy. To retain social legitimacy, we have to be a genuine part of the communities that we claim to serve. Now, when you wrote this book, were you afraid of the pushback you might get? Because I'm here thinking a professor, uh, curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, I wouldn't necessarily expect you to be speaking out so vocally about this issue. So were you afraid when you uh, wrote this book? Uh, yeah, this isn't a moment for, you know, white fragility, right? So, you know, some, some people have your privilege and some people have platform. To use that privilege and platform to do nothing and say nothing is to do something. I'm very inspired by Michelle Wolf Truelo, the you know the visionary Haitian anthropologist, who in his book Silencing the Past uses this formulation where he says he makes a distinction between mentions and silences, and he says that a silence is as much an act as a mention. So we we we, we say something, we don't say something. We're still doing something. He says that to silence the past is like silencing a gun. And those lines from Trulot 
were in my mind as I was involved in the Benin you know, dialogue group over 13 years as the curator here in Oxford with these objects as part of what I am you know responsible for ultimately you know my job is to understand the objects that are currently in the care of the Pitt Rivers Museum and to understand the value that they have for people today and for which bit to listen to that that value so this book is an exercise in doing you know doing my job and i have changed my mind over the years about the return of objects to africa in a thoughtful way and and a gradual way but largely only really because i used to be as a lot of people watching this maybe would i used to think it wasn't a top priority i used to think there were more important battles to fight and i you know i don't even see it as a battle anymore i see it as essentially a form of curation as we evolve our practice the these are not bank vaults they're not you know prisons and indeed the history of incarceration and its relationship with anti-black violence has such a resonance in some of these museum objects you know not the benin bronzes but elsewhere in nigeria here at pit rivers and other institutions like ours we have some objects which were taken by by colonial administrators as evidence in the trial of african people who were then either incarcerated or killed the status of those objects is something that troubles me in the same way as the status of any object that, that they're almost a counterbalance to objects that were taken because the the notion of western justice and western modes of thought being imposed upon the wider world and wrought and told in sort of material form runs against everything anthropology has become since the 19th century so our museums if we're not careful become time warps they become a, like a freeze frame of what anthropology was in 1897 our job if they're going to be public spaces is to evolve that so no i mean you know bring it on if people want to have the conversation i'm sure there are things in the in the book that people will argue with and i hope so because it's not the last word it's the first word or one of the first words in actually the me doing my job as a curator of sharing the knowledge and of trying to listen i've got some things wrong i think i hope i've got something right in just trying to be transparent and trying to to be honest really and finally what is the realistic time scale of this process in the case of the benin um yeah, bronzes uh sir david ajay has been um appointed as the architect for the new royal museum uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Legacy Restoration Trust is now formed with the help of the Benin uh, Dialogue uh, Group. So there is now a, a legal entity to oversee the Royal Museum. It brings together you know, the Royal Court with, in, in dialogue and in partnership with the federal government and the national government. You know, returns are, I think, from each institution will take its own, its own approach. But with more than 160 institutions worldwide, I very much expect that in a matter of months, we're going to be seeing some high-profile high institutions making serious steps towards not this old racist idea that we're going to loan back something that was stolen, but the permanent unconditional return. It may start with those museums, not like the Pitt Rivers, that have 
like one object that maybe doesn't fit with the rest of the collection that someone gave them at one point. But I really hope, and it's not my decision, as you pointed out, it's the trustee decisions. But, you know, I really hope that in my, you know, curatorial life here, uh, I see the return of, uh, of the bronzes that, that, that are in the care of the University of Oxford. Uh, in the book, I talk about a decade of returns. Here we are in 2020. I've got to say, well, when I wrote the book, I finished it, you know, shortly before lockdown, the world feels well who knows it feels like maybe it's more even more is possible now than it felt at that point but there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic um you know i just think you know let's 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 show let's find the paths you know to restitution uh, a lot of sort of private individuals are doing this already there is some really really you know you know you know, you know interesting developments among outside just me a lot of museum leaders in you know euro-american institutions and a changed atmosphere in africa across the continent of africa there is you know a whole host of you know our work which is funded by open society foundations which is called action for restitution to africa is in the process of the building of a new uh, continent-wide network which is african-led which is about you know permanent restitution but a range of other you know grassroots organizations are getting together it i don't think it's ever felt easier to make links in between the grassroots you know campaigns in africa and you know, you know the uh, the museums who are in a position you know to return objects so let's you know we'll leave the national museums in the uk to do their own thing they can they can catch up one day if they want to but you know that's not the point they hold a tiny minority of what was taken and as you know i think we're seeing all the progress in all these other all these other locations so the book i guess is i'm hoping there'll be a new edition in a couple of years where i can update that index at the back and we're always adding more knowledge because so little is known about where these objects are in the west but we'll also be able to start a new appendix which is a list of the returns and let's see, you know, one by one, each of those objects as it returns will be an incredibly important, you know, event for the Benin Kingdom, for Nigerian people, uh, for, for, for the cause of African restitution, but also for European museums, which are now spaces, they're sites of conscience, they're spaces where we can involve ourselves as other European nations are doing in a new reckoning with the legacies of empire. Professor Dan Hicks. Thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you.